Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Good evening. Hey, good to see you. All right. So in this episode, we are going to take a deep dive into the wild-type world of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Specifically, we're going to focus in on the mechanisms of a certain manifestation of this genetic disorder, which is chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. So, Avi, why the focus on alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? You know, as a pulmonologist, I'm not infrequently testing for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency in patients with emphysema, especially those who have early onset emphysema or a lighter smoking history, sort of like, why do you have so much emphysema? You're, say, less than 50 years old and you've smoked 10-pack years or something. It just doesn't quite make sense. That's the sort of the, often the patient that I will send alpha-1 levels on and test for it. Although there are, you know, certain COPD guidelines that actually recommend testing for it in anyone who has emphysema. Either way, it's also on the differential for lower low predominant bronchiectasis. So I test for it in that situation as well. And as we'll see, it makes sense that having alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency could predispose somebody to emphysema. But it was less intuitive to me why it could also cause chronic liver disease, like why emphysema and liver disease together from this one mutation. So Avi, before we get into sort of the nitty gritty of what's going on in the liver versus the lung, can you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, A, like what does alpha-1 antitrypsin do? Like what is its like function? But also I'm curious about how it got its name because the alpha-1 part makes sense, right? That probably relates to the SPEP, but the antitrypsin part doesn't make much sense to me because I always thought of trypsin as being a pancreatic enzyme and it doesn't sound like we're talking about the pancreas tonight. Yeah. So in terms of function, alpha-1 antitrypsin, it's a protease inhibitor and it targets and deactivates, I guess, like a number of enzymes. The one that sort of is most relevant for like emphysema and lung damage is neutrophil elastase. So alpha-1 is made in the liver. It travels to the lungs. And then it goes to the lungs and helps protect from too much neutrophil elastase activity, which otherwise would cause excessive tissue breakdown in the lungs and airways if it sort of goes unchecked. And I guess the antitrypsin like name, it's it's sort of a little bit of an antiquated name because I guess when it was like first discovered, they thought that like that trypsin was its sort of main target, but I guess it actually sort of targets multiple enzymes. And like I said, in the lungs, it's really elastase. So what does it mean to have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency clinically? So when someone has alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, they make less alpha-1 antitrypsin than normal. Or the alpha-1 that they do make is dysfunctional, which is all sort of depends on the mutated allele that they have. A normal genotype is called MM with two normal M alleles. And the most common mutated genotype is called ZZ, but there are others as well. And there's actually some pretty like interesting names for these other variants, like M. Malton or M. Mineral Springs. And also there's one that's called QO Granite Falls. <laughs> I think it has to do like where those mutations were discovered. It's like hemoglobins. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So some, some cool names there. And you know, as you might expect, people can be heterozygous as carriers of an abnormal alpha-1 gene. Those people are, are typically asymptomatic. And so you already mentioned this, but you know, alpha-1 antitrypsin, the deficiency is associated with emphysema and bronchiectasis in the lungs. So is that actually due to this loss of elastase inhibition and sort of uncontrolled elastase breakdown in the lungs themselves? Is that what we're seeing happen? That's exactly it. Too much elastase activity, that leads to tissue destruction in the lungs. And if it involves the alveoli and the parenchyma, then you're going to get emphysema. And if it's involving more destruction of the airways, then you get bronchiectasis and that sort of, you know, airway dilation, you sort of, you know, bagged out sort of floppy airways. 
So is that the mechanism for how the liver is involved? Damage from excess elastase activity not being broken down by A1AT? That's what I always assumed was happening. If it's damaging the lungs and the liver at the same time, why wouldn't they both result from the same mechanism? But it turns out there's a completely different mechanism at work. And to understand what's going on, we need to review the concept of toxic gain versus toxic loss of function. When alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency affects the lungs, we're dealing with a toxic loss of function, meaning the loss of alpha-1 antitrypsin function leads to the excessive neutrophil elastase activity that results in lung damage. So the initial step in this chain of events is a loss of function. Okay, so that part makes sense. And it sounds like, from what you're telling us so far at least, that elastase isn't the problem in liver disease like it is with lung disease like emphysema, bronchiectasis. So you mentioned this idea of toxic gain versus toxic loss of function. So in the liver, is there one of these sort of toxic gain of function things that's going on? Yeah. So histologically, when you look at affected liver tissue from alpha-1 patients under the microscope, you can see these PAS positive inclusions or clumps, I guess, filling the tissue. And it turns out that those clumps are polymerized alpha-1 antitrypsin that's clumped together in the hepatocytes. So you're actually seeing the protein under the microscope. And this accumulation is called a toxic gain of function as opposed to the loss of function that leads to emphysema. So I typically think of like a protein as being misfolded or something like that when it is clumping like that. What is wrong with the alpha-1 antitrypsin protein in this situation that causes it to have this cascade of events? Yeah, like something's gumming up the works, right? So let's focus on the ZZE genotype, which as we discussed, it's the most common mutation in alpha-1. So apparently the ZZE genotype also has the strongest association with liver disease, along with others, including M. Melton. So with Z, there's a crucial amino acid substitution where a lysine is substituted for a glutamic acid in a specific hinge point in the structure of the protein. And this disrupted hinge point causes protein misfolding. And that leads to polymerization of the misfolded proteins, accumulation of this abnormal alpha-1 in the endoplasmic reticulum of the hepatocytes, and sort of that process that you were alluding to, Hannah. So the misfolded protein is sort of polymerized and clumps together into inclusions that you can actually see histologically if you do like a cross-section and look under the microscope, like that kind of thing? Yeah, that's it. That's the toxic gain of function. You have these abnormal protein inclusions resulting from the misfolded alpha-1 antitrypsin. And it sort of all fits together, I think. They get stuck in the liver, the protein, and therefore it can't make its way to the lungs to prevent neutrophil elastase activity. And that ultimately leads to lung tissue breakdown and emphysema. And interestingly, a null genotype where no alpha-1 antitrypsin protein is produced does not lead to liver disease. And that sort of makes sense. You have to make the protein to have it get clumped up in these inclusions in the hepatocytes. And without that, you won't get liver damage. So if you have either ZZ or M. Melton, one of these liver-affecting genotypes, you're going to gum up the works with a ton of excess alpha-1 antitrypsin, which affects the liver, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to the loss of function effect in the lungs. So how are these inclusions, these accumulations leading to liver injury themselves? Because yeah, I'll say right now, 
you're telling us that it's a fu- we're gaining a function. That sounds kind of like exciting, <laughs> but apparently it's not good to gain a toxic function. So like, what is that toxic function? <laughs> apparently this is a function that you don't want to gain. Yeah. I mean, you got to assume that like the inclusions are the problem, right? They're there. They seem like they're sort of um, clumping up, but what are they actually doing to the liver? That is the basis of a lot of Alzheimer's research that seems to be a problem. <laughs> I mean, I keep, <laughs> but in this case, it seems relevant. It's, it's so weird because I keep hearing like, why aren't, why aren't we calling these amyloid? These sound like amyloid. <laughs> <laughs> well, the leading theory centers on the prospect that inclusions cause mitochondrial damage. And what seems to occur is that these alpha-1 clumps, uh, they sort of injure the mitochondria that are hanging out in the endoplasmic reticulum. And those mitochondria that are are damaged release bad stuff like reactive oxygen species, which then damages the hepatocytes. And that process has been called proteotoxic stress. So it seems like it's not necessarily the inclusions themselves, but damaging the mitochondria and then leaking bad things like reactive oxygen species into the cells. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is that we should call them ZZ Pops. Before we go any further, let's hear about this episode's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When clinicians are at their best, working in medicine can be one of the most miraculous and humbling experiences. But on some days, it's easy to get overwhelmed, or like you're not showing up in the way that you want to. Working with a therapist can help you manage the challenges and get closer to the version of yourself that you want to be. This is true for students all the way through the most seasoned clinicians. At any level, therapy can teach positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And therapy isn't just for those who are struggling. Anybody can benefit. And if you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash clinicians today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash clinicians. And now back to the episode. Okay, so so welcome back. Avi, I want to now talk about treatments and the sort of implications about how these inclusions and the pretty toxic stress sort of have implications for treatments. So I haven't necessarily done this, but I feel like I've heard that some patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency receive enzyme infusions. And so the question that sort of comes to mind is, do these infusions actually mitigate the liver injury at all? Is that like partly what they're trying to do? You know, you're absolutely right. The patients with severe enzyme deficiency and significant obstruction on their pulmonary function tests can receive supplemental alpha-1 protein via intravenous infusion. And this therapeutically replaces the enzyme that they don't produce, that toxic loss of function. And, you know, I remember like when I was in residency, I was, you know, and learning about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, I assumed like that it would also treat the liver disease as well. But it turns out that because liver disease results from a toxic gain of function, and it results from this these inclusion clumping right after the protein is produced, like right there in the endoplasmic reticulum. Infusions, unfortunately, don't really impact liver injury because the problem happens immediately after the protein is made. Hmm. That is unfortunate, though. It makes sense. So we've covered why certain genotypes of alpha-1 can lead to liver disease and why enzyme replacement wouldn't mitigate that injury. Avi, is there anything else you learned about alpha-1 antitrypsin and liver injury before we wrap up? I came across this really interesting association between alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency liver disease and obesity. 
And you know, besides more typical risk factors for liver disease, like excessive alcohol use or viral hepatitis, one of the main predictors of more advanced liver disease and progression to cirrhosis from alpha-1 appears to be obesity, but there seems to be a bidirectional relationship. With heterozygosity for alpha-1, um, or like we talked about having only one abnormal gene allele and one normal one, it's actually a risk factor for progression of fatty liver disease to NASH cirrhosis. So in a 2020 retrospective study of uh, these like liver explants from NASH cirrhosis patients, there was 20% of them had um, one alpha one Z mutation. Um, so it, you know, 20% were heterozygous for alpha one, which is really a startling number to just sort of randomly see in a NASH cirrhosis population. Because I got to assume that the prevalence in the general population is significantly lower than that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's obviously yeah, not it's, one in five. Alpha-1 mutations are, are one of the more common variants that are out there, but it is certainly not 20%. So, so then why would that be? And, and also, why would a heterozygosity, which I assume is associated with normal serum levels of alpha-1 enzyme, like why would that lead to this sort of you know, maybe progression or um, acceleration of liver disease? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like we touched on at the in the opening, heterozygotes generally have normal levels, um, but Z heterozygotes do make some structurally abnormal alpha one. And the best explanation I found theorized that it may be that some chronic inflammatory injury from Nash interferes with autophagy or removal of whatever abnormal alpha one is produced, and so it is able to hang out in the liver. And then, you know, again, sort of mis, sort of misfold, cause problems, and then contribute to fatty liver disease progression. So there does seem to be that sort of bidirectional relationship. You know, I feel like this is a lab that I so often send and really did not understand the mechanism or the reason why for. Because I, I think in my head, I was like, well, it seems unlikely that this is a huge contributor since the patient has absolutely no lung disease. But really, you're helping us kind of separate it out into a couple different disease types based on what the genotype is and sort of what that is expected to be. So thank you, Avi. This is this is very helpful. Can you give us some take-home points? Yeah, absolutely. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency-related liver disease results from misfolding and clumping of abnormal alpha-1 antitrypsin in hepatocytes, which then injures mitochondria and leads to reactive oxygen species release and cell damage. This is called toxic gain of function, which differs from the toxic loss of function in alpha-1 that leads to emphysema. And there seems to be a bidirectional link between liver disease in alpha-1 and obesity, with obesity being a prime risk factor for alpha-1 liver disease progression to cirrhosis and heterozygosity for alpha-1 seeming to be a risk factor for progression of fatty liver disease to NASH cirrhosis. So that's what I got. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. 